You know, this, it's funny, I don't know, maybe it's because of the costume they're wearing, but this almost feels uh, like it could be a 19th century portrait, you know? Yes. Could be a kind of picture you would see, uh, you know, that was an old, old print uh, somewhere. But that's not too bad. But I understand. You know, I don't, didn't realize how bad Brodovich's layouts were, that they're impossible. This, this was, I think you, you were telling us yesterday about um, so the, the uh, cosmetics companies yeah, taking the kids off the street. Kids off the street and show, show. I mean, this is impossible. It doesn't show anything. Yeah, there's, there's one that I, I particularly like, that one. But it's hard to see. The girls in the mirror, but there's another picture tucked over the corner. This cracked mirror, yeah. In the hand. Do you have negatives for any of these, or do you throw them out? I don't think so. That I kept these negatives. I kept negatives of this. Do you see the opera and how badly that was done? I mean, it's ridiculous. Here were really good pictures, amusing. Yeah. Well, here's another one. This is a bad slide, but yeah, that is Macaroni. I don't know what this is from. Well, this is uh, Jean Gabin. Just I photographed him, and the other people came into it. Right. Who, who is it? Jean, Jean Gabin. Is he a French movie actor? Filmmaker. Actor. Terrible. You know, I'm absolutely shocked about all that. This is nothing. Mm. But this one's pretty nice. Yes. Oh, I have good jazz pictures. I have really some good jazz pictures. But then the thing is, how did he present them? Bernice always was furious, and now I understand why. Did you ever um, see or see Bernice use this camera that she she was working on with your aim with your thumb? Are you familiar with this little mm -hmm. hand camera? that she worked on for candid photography? No. There was one. Well, here's a typical spread. Yeah. Look at that. So he wasn't a good layout man. Well, kind of a layout I guess it depended stuff. on your viewpoint. If you were uh, selling high fashion, I guess he was good. If you were a photographer... Uh, but he, maybe he couldn't do more than that. Well, I wonder if it's not even designed for someone who's standing in a newsstand and flipping through the magazine. No. And will it catch their eye, you know? No. Nobody was buying Harper's Bazaar that way. That's probably right. And I guess we have one of these women in the corner here. Yeah, this is a second society woman, but it's not as good as the other one. Uh, another one in the same spread, you mean? Yeah. No, I mean the Another two one that women. wasn't published. I mean, this was published, not the other one. I see his horror. I'm absolutely shocked. Well, shocked. <laughs> yeah. But I'm interested to, to have on record what your opinion of this work is. But I think it's absolutely, absolutely impossible that nothing of my way of photographing and nothing of what I have is in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's. Uh... And that only proves. Uh, and you know the thing also, please don't forget that that I had to do that very fast. I had to go there, bring the pictures back, then they called up and they said, where are the photographs? My husband always said, 
but she's just taking them. We need them yesterday. Yeah. And also, there's no way of going deeper into anything, but running their photograph and coming back and killing them. That's not really the nature of magazine work. No, it was. It is not anymore. You see, for instance, Life magazine several years ago, they gave three months assignments, and Diane had one or two months assignments. She could select herself for Esquire or for anything, and that was not done just like this. Put your stool back. Thank you. And I'm, I don't want to have anything to do with these pictures in the history of the time. This is not the history of my photographs. Yeah. It's the history of how you paid the bills. That is the history of how I paid the bills. It's like you see a writer who has to write some advertising things, yeah. and then that cannot be considered as writing. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's very important, I think, to to know that, to have that on the record. And yet when Mrs. Snow went to Paris, she always came back and she said, when I show this uh, magazine in Paris, because she had a French version, it's always new pictures, always new pictures. And Cartier came over to me and said, I love your photographs in Harper's Bazaar. And this is when I said to him, these are not my photographs. And then he came to see them. Hmm. Yeah. But I see that now so clearly, I mean, yeah, did, um, she went, uh, what, over to Paris probably once a year. No. In Brodovich also? No, but she had to go two, three times to Paris because that's where it was a fashion. So. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about a few people in Paris that we overlooked that might be, I don't Paris? know. Paris? Yeah, well, I didn't know anybody. No, just Paris. people uh, who, you, who you might have known or you might have, you mentioned some, of course, you mentioned the extent to which you knew Cortez, which was only slightly new, knew this other woman. Um, but uh, did you know, uh, and you, we talked that you didn't know Bernice. Uh, I'm wondering if you were, if you were, uh, had any contact with uh, people like, uh, like Breton? Cartier? No, no, no. no, no. Oh, uh, you mean uh, uh, Breton, uh, the, the poet? Yeah, no. or or no, not at all. or Philippe Soupol, no, or any any of those people in that group, Rene Crevel. No, I was um, as you see first I was in contact with musicians, and then I was in Montparnasse, mm -hmm. and I didn't know these famous people at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah were, did you know any of the the people that were referred to as uh, the the what were they called? Surrealists? No, no, I'm the the six the six French composers who were called. Uh, the Nouveau Genre or something like that. I uh, don't know, because at that time I had stopped music. Let's see. Um, Milhau. You? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I photographed him here. Did you, w were you kind of in a group of people when you were studying music in, in France that you knew that you saw well, him? I met, or I met in a part this music, a part of my teacher, for instance, Milhau. How about, um, uh, there's a couple of names, François Poulenc. Poulenc? Well, I may have met him. You see, and in concerts, I heard him, definitely. Okay, so, who else? Satie? Eric Satie, I think he was dead at that time. Um, he may have died right during this. Uh, yeah, Eric Satie was the one who had the six composers, but his music I heard already at the age of 13 in Vienna. Mm -hmm. See, when nobody else knew it, but Schoenberg played it in Vienna. 
Very original composer. Yeah. yeah. Who else? Honegger. Honegger. And we have met him, the fat kind of guy, Swiss, Swiss composer. Okay, so none of these people you had any, uh, you never worked no, with any no, of them? No. Or anything, you just, yeah. uh, you would have seen them at parties or heard their music? Yes, or that kind I of met them, I heard them, uh, their music is familiar to me. Okay. Um, and a thing I, we were trying to clear up in our own minds, um, you you continued with the study of music after you got to Paris for a number of years until you decided mm -hmm. that the voice was just, you decided to give it up. I had to give it up. And uh, I'm just wondering, was that, how many years was that, roughly? Six years? Ten years? Uh, you came to Paris in 22. Maybe ten years, I went on. Maybe in 32 you gave it up somewhere? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. When, then, then the other thing we were trying to straighten out was, uh, we weren't quite sure on, was when, uh, when did you begin painting? Or when did you begin to do it? Wait a moment, I can seriously. maybe tell you that. That must have been in 33, shortly before 34. So when was I was living in Nice at a certain time, then I went with this Victor Bauer and his cousin to Florence for mm -hmm. a short time and started to draw, and then came to Paris alone and started to paint. So the end Bauer of 33 was, a, yeah, was 33, a painter. 34. Bauer was a painter, was he? Hmm? He was a painter, but that has nothing to do with me. <coughs> he was a writer and a painter. So there really wasn't any overlap then between your singing and the music. And, and the then I still thought that maybe I could find somebody who could free me from this block, because it was then that the voice was physiologically not coming up. And then I gave that up and. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, when you were, and that had a bad repercussion because with that I didn't want to have anything to do with music anymore, and for years and years and years didn't got to go to concerts because I was not the one who would always just listen and not do anything. You see, you were too well educated in music to I mean, ignore it. Uh, very active. Did you did you attend performances of the Ballet Russe when they were in Paris? I remember that I think when I came to Paris, they sent me to the Diaghilev Ballet, and I saw it once. Just one time. With these extraordinary backgrounds of great painters and so forth, but I, that time, did not quite realize the importance of what it really was. I remember it. I will never forget it. Mm -hmm. And it was there that Brodovich really got a great deal of his education, because he was the assistant of Diaghilev. Yeah. And he, he just did some designing for, for Diaghilev? Assistant design? I don't know what. Yeah. We had some, just some kind of funny, curious questions. We, uh, uh, Bernice told us a funny story about uh, when Lindbergh arrived in Paris. And we were curious whether you remembered I did. That. I do remember. Do you? I do. Were you in the uh, traffic jam? No, no, no. I <laughs> only knew. You see, all that was announced on loudspeakers and so forth and so forth. And I do only remember that once in the Champs Elysees, when his car was driving by, that I saw. Just in the big parade after yeah. he'd arrived? Yeah. Uh, on, on a more serious note, <clears throat> um, in 1929, of course, while you were in the middle of the time you were in Paris, 
um, was the stock market crash in the United States, followed by the failure of banks uh, all over, and I think. I knew very little about it. I know that I did know about it. In Vienna. And I'm wondering, yeah, what you did feel about that, or did, did it immediately begin to affect you, or how long did it take before you began to feel that there was some you know, financial effect, uh, pressure on you? I never knew a single American in Paris, and I didn't know English people because I didn't speak the language. And I knew that when it happened, I was in Nice, but then I don't know anything anymore. It didn't have any immediate impact on you at all, on the way you, you lived? No. It didn't affect uh, the, the investments in Italy or no. anything uh, to begin no. with? <coughs> Did, were you beginning to feel any kind of financial pinch by after a couple of years after that, in the beginning of the 30s? No, you the see, depression? the thing is, not at all. <coughs> because my whole fortune in Italy and all these things were tied up in a terrific lawsuit. When my father died in Vienna, <coughs> he had a great friend who was a great industrialist in, in Italy, like Squibs here, you know, these pharmaceutical things. And he felt, my father, that the family didn't know anything about money and about, and about the estates and about all that. Of course not, because he never told us anything. And he had confidence in that man and asked him to protect us and take over and be the executor the of the executive and the man who would direct all these properties or whatever that is. And then came out that this man was one of the greatest crooks in the world and he used our whole money and fortune to put constantly in his business and cover that up. Hmm. And it took me years and years and years before I found that out. And that is a long story which I don't want to get in because it has nothing to do with photography. And I won out finally. Well, but he wasn't a member of the Ferragna family. Hmm? Wasn't a member of the Ferragna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that is an incredible story, which yesterday I thought over in connection with the Lund story, because of what kind of an initiative and courage I had to take then finally, in 1936 and five, the money out of the hands of that man. I almost went to Mussolini, because everybody could see Mussolini. That was my last thing but in which way I could have come to Mussolini in a complete anti-fascist way. That was an interesting situation. How, how do you mean? It's a very interesting story, darling, but it has really so little to do with my photography. Well, it has to do with you, though. <laughs> I'm interested. Well, I became aware, suddenly, that this man was not our friend, but that he was a crook, and whenever I needed money, he wouldn't give it to me. And the only way of getting money to France was to come over to Italy and to take it in my pocket, in my valise and on me, and to swindle it over, which was an extremely dangerous thing to do, because in Italy you could murder somebody, but if you took money out of this country, you had 10 years of prison, and then the whole, the whole uh, money of your whole family was sequestrated by the state, and I knew that, and yet it was the only way I could exist, because I didn't want to live in a fascist country. So, I did that maybe three, four times a year, and I was completely aware of what was going on, and that this man had my procuration, which means I had signed that he was the one who administrated my, and my sisters, and my mothers, and my brothers' fortune. And then I found out that the man was a crook, and I had a very good friend in Paris 
who was a businessman and who made me see very clearly that that was not normal at all, what went on there. So I decided for myself, because my mother and my sister were afraid, and my, my brother was not, but I hadn't seen my brother for many years, to do that. And one time, and that was two years before, I traveled again from Milano to Paris, of course, always first class, always very elegant in order to hide it up. And I met on that train a woman, if, when I came into the train, outside was standing a very elegant and beautiful young woman signing books and so forth and so forth. And then when I came into the compartment, she sat down and she said, well, you see, my name is Daisy Di Carpenetto, and I'm a writer, and this is my last book. And Mussolini said about this book, you know, in Italian there are two words, un scrittore is a male writer, and una scrittrice is a female writer. And uh, Mussolini said, now you are a scrittore, meaning a male writer. She was very proud of that. And we sat down, and she was an extraordinary woman. And little by little started to tell me that she was a delegate of Mussolini who was sent out to Paris to meet the prince such and such as Sweden and to have a lot of state affairs and she was also a journalist and that she had started to work with Mussolini in his youth. She was 32 at that time as a socialist journalist because Mussolini also was a socialist journalist and at a certain time she was engaged to the Count Ciano who then married the daughter of Mussolini, which is all true, I have the proof of all that, and she started to rave about her activities now that he was with Mussolini and what an incredible man he was, and he, she had lots of jobs, for instance, to organize women in the mountains for the war, and she told me all these fascist occupations and was raving about fascism. And I was sitting there with my hidden money <laughs> and myself and in the valise, and in the corridor was walking up and down a carabinieri, you know, mm -hmm. and I was listening to that. And suddenly I had enough. And this happens to me very often in my life, that I do something which I didn't know one second before would happen. It's always a little dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I interrupted her and I said, I would like to tell you one thing, that I do not believe in fascism and that the fascist regimes, Hitler or Mussolini, are a very deadly kind of a destructive thing. In other words, and she looked at me, and for one minute she was dumbfounded. And then she said, I thank you for your sincerity and for the fact that you didn't let me go on making a fool of myself. And then we started to talk. Yeah. And this trip between Milano and Paris then became an extraordinary one because she told me about her life and about her love affairs and about how men treated her and what she was doing and about her friendship with Mussolini. And then I told her about that man who had my fortune in his hands and was misusing it and that sooner or later I would have to do something about it. And this is when she said, if ever something happens, here is my address in Rome, and you get in touch with me, and Mussolini has one rule, and that is he sees everybody who wants to talk to him. 
That is one of the things he does. It takes time. But everybody who wants to talk to Mussolini about a great difficulty in his life has an audience with him. And then when Jefferson came, you know, and then when I came to Paris and the train, the train had stopped and we went out, she and I, Jefferson came running toward with his open arms and she was very moved. That was the last I saw of her. And then two years later, when I had decided that this man was not going to steal my whole money, I went all by myself to Italy to select another lawyer to give him all my papers and all the administration of my properties in his hands and take it away from the one who had it and fight that man. And that was horrible. Because when I went to the banks and talked about the kind of papers I had, they said they were all working with him. But you have given the procuration of your whole whatever you have to Mr. Such and Such. How can you prove that you only have one cent that belongs to you? And I couldn't. So I went to the director of the Banca d'Italia, which was a Count Sforza, you know, all that in my own noodle, completely alone. And this Count Sforza didn't receive me, but he sent somebody to meet me. And I said to this man, there is somebody here who holds my property and fortune in his hands, who does not want to permit me to take it away from the lawyer I know is a crook, and I cannot even prove that it belongs to me. And this man went back to his boss and came back and he said, well, the Count Sforta says that you should get in touch with this man, this great industrialist, whose name we do not want to know yet. And to tell him that that cannot be because otherwise we would interfere because there was a very strict law in Italy, never to fool around with the money of strangers and to treat strangers who have property in Italy with kid gloves. That was very important for the publicity and for the honesty of this kind of a propaganda ministry. So that was one step I had won. And yes, I was sitting in Nice and having a good time. <laughs> and how dangerous it was with me, you will see later. And then I went to the bank one day and I said, I would like you to give into my hands all the papers, you know, money I have, and all to get away from this kind of an administrator and to give into my hands every paper I have signed, including my will and the procuration on the procuration and this and that and that. And this guy looked at me and laughed and said, and how are you going to prove that this is your money? And I said, and first I would like to tell you what the Count Sforza, the director of the Banca d'Italia, has said. And second, I would like you to know that if at two o'clock I don't have that in my hands, I take the plane to Rome and I will see Mr. Mussolini. And suddenly the banker went to the phone 
and said in Italian, questa signora non è facile, which means this woman isn't easy. <laughs> and at two o'clock I had it in my hands. Do you know what this man wanted to do? He wanted to arrest me and transport me to the border saying that I was a communist, which I never was, and that I lived like a prostitute in Paris with my husband with whom I wasn't married and get me out of Italy in one hour and he missed the situation by a couple of hours. I was told that later on. Hmm. You didn't know that he was looking for you, but you got out. That I was told when I was in 53 in, in Milano. Hmm. Wow. So darling, this I owed to the unbelievably dangerous situation I brought about telling a delegate of Mussolini that I was against fascism in Italian soil, which was not undangerous, because they have just they could have just taken my valises and gone through, you see, and then I would have been in prison. And when I came in '53 to Rome, I met a the you know most famous journalist in Italy, which was Montanelli, in Rome, and his wife at a party, and his wife worked for Vogue magazine as a designer. You know, they lived to terrific parties again. And I said to her, do you know a writer whose name is Daisy Di Carpenetto? She was out of the house of Savoia, of royal blood and the countess. And she said, yes, that was a very great friend of mine. And when Mussolini was assassinated, she uh, committed suicide, and before that, for many years, she had been on dope and alcohol because she couldn't take the downfall of Italy. It was to that woman, darling, that I owe the fact that I'm here. And you see, people will always say that I'm imprudent, that I do impossible things, and yet when I have done things like that, it always turned out that that was a thing to do, and I have done the second thing. And when I think now about what happens between Lon and me, and in which way this man is abusing me, and in which way this lawyer, I'm paying already $1,000, has done nothing, and in which way I'm trapped in between a couple of situations, I had had the feeling today that it is because I don't have it in my hands, and because I cannot go with my instinct, and because I am trapped in between all these conventional things, which isn't for me. You're being too careful. That all that is much too conservative, it is much too careful, and I don't know how to handle it, but something has given me a warning not to go a conventional academic way. I'm going to be sunk. Yeah, you Sooner or later, I will have to take over. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe you should just unexpectedly visit the person who was doing the printing and ask for the prints, <laughs> you know, and be asked to no. be given, given them, or something like hundred that. A hundred thousand prints are in Benson's hands, which are bad, and Sandra has nothing to do with that. No, I mean, go to Benson and say, But it's not him. only that, but what <laughs> Lon does in connection with lying about me. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, I was just, I was just thinking, if you had the prints, then the prince couldn't, the bad prince could never go anywhere. You could destroy them. That would be one thing, but I can't get them out. Yeah. Yeah. 
And this is not all. If I will tell you the whole story, it's not to be believed anymore. And you see, it is because I have not acted Uh in my own way that things are not going to function. I'm curious, I don't want to drag out the, this no. story anymore, it's very, it was really interesting, but uh, um, I was very curious, once you got your hands on the money from the bank, how did you get it out of the country? It must have been no. a lot of... Oh, that, that came two years later. You see, at ah, that time, I had to get it out of the hands of these lawyers and this man, and they give it to another lawyer in another city, uh, who, who was, was an honest man. Was honest, yeah. And only two years later, I did it, and of course, that was very dangerous. So this was, would have been like 34 when you did this? No, that was later. <coughs> 35, 36, and then 38, 37, I got some money out of 38, a couple of months before I came here. 38. 38. 38. Ah. And that was terrifying, because at that time, there were different things one could do, and that was a businessman in France who needed Italian money, you know? Mm-hmm would be the one who would say, if you can bring out so and so much Italian money, I give you in France so much. But then there were specific people who handled that. They had an agent in Italy, and one was in Paris. And a number was given to you. And you had to give to this man in Italy one million lire if he said the right number. And that was it. And it was horrible, because when I came to Italy, I went to Trento to my lawyer and I said, I'm now married and I have to install myself in Paris, but I do not want to drag this money out of Italy because I could have in Italy what I wanted. They could not refuse to give me one million lire, but they were watching. They said, if you take some, then we are going to watch you. A detective is going to be after you, if you get it out or if you use it there. And I had a bag of that size with cash, one million lire. It was 10 pounds heavy there. <laughs> and with that kind of a cash, I walked around in my hotel. I went to the dining room and everybody was watching. But there was also a law that you could not have in your home and in a hotel one million lire. You couldn't have it. That was against the law. Couldn't have that much cash. And with that, darling, I walked around day after day after day. And everybody was looking at me. I really thought that time I would break down. And then when a man came into the hotel, he said the wrong number. <laughs> and I said, this is not the number. He said, the numbers have been changed. At that time, anti-Semitism broke out in Italy, and all the Jews wanted to get the money out of Italy. And then I gave him this money, and then I took the train back to Nice. And a sheer coincidence, or I don't know what, that all the passports are taken away on the border and are then given back. But my passport was not given back. And that half an hour I thought I was for 10 years in prison. Was this an Italian passport? Yeah, no, that was an Austrian passport. But that half an hour when I didn't get back my passport, I thought, that's it. So this, this man came to you with, with the wrong number? He was number correct. He came because numbers were changed, because everything was changed. But he you, was, had to, you just had to believe him that yeah. he was not lying about the change But I didn't believe him. I didn't know. And, and when I came back to, to Nice at that time, I was a nervous wreck. I guess. And you see, all these things I did all by myself, all So you, you had married Yesa before you went to do that? 
cousins. Yeah. I had married him. But before. he, but he stayed in Nice. For years, it was very difficult with his passport of, of Russian. Yeah. You see here, that's not a passport. This is always a paper that goes for this country and this trip only. Oh, a, a visa. Yeah. And then for another trip over there, see, it's not a passport. It is a something. Papers. Yes, something like that. And of course, yes, I was studying Esperanto and having a good time in this. And there were several <laughs> friends of of ours who said he really doesn't deserve that. But after all, I did it for myself. And, you were doing and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Studying Esperanto. But I had a, I had enough guts to do things. You see. Gosh, you can, that's pretty good. And you, you know, I feel I that. feel kind of. What is it here that this man is doing that against me? And that gets worse and worse and worse, and is abused and abused. That's not me who reacts and follows the lawyer, and follows the lawyer, and it is abandoned, and it picked up again, and everything is lukewarm, lukewarm. Well, I, I don't think that I'm ever going to get anything as long as I'm lukewarm. Mm -hmm. So you took it into your own hands? And I may one day take it in my hands. That's how it learned, yeah. Hmm. Put it at a lawyer who's an aggressive kind of a lawyer. Yeah, Ar Arnold Crane. <laughs> who? <laughs> I was just joking. Uh, Arnold Crane, the man mm -hmm. in Chicago who's the collector of photographs, who's a kind of crazy. Who's a lawyer. Who's also a lawyer. You know, he's bald. Maybe you, you must have met him sometime. No. He's aggressive, but he's aggressive for Arnold Crane. You don't he's want a, to get he's kind of a... No, no, that's, that's a crazy guy. Yeah, it's a, he has a huge collection of Man Ray, Man Ray's photographs. And you see, if I would have come to, and then this woman said to me, all the doors are open for you. You can photograph whatever you want in order to see that fascism is only that. I could have done God knows what I wanted. This is the woman that you had in Dorothy That was a phenomenal woman. Who died for... Um, one of those who cannot compromise. The other thing that was, was happening around this time, I don't know if you would have known anyone who was involved in it, was the Civil War in Spain. Did you have any contact with anyone? Well, yes, then. <clears throat> when that Civil War broke out, I was just beginning to photograph, and I wanted to go over there and photograph, and I was very ill. And my doctor said, to, if you can't go over there. When you're going to be there, you're not going to get ill. But I really could go there. It was very difficult, you see, to go over there. And Jefsa wouldn't let me, of course, and I'm not a war photographer, you know. But of course, that was a terrific kind of a thing. And all the Spanish refugees came over, and... There was a lot of um, sympathy, I would suppose. Very much so, the popular front and the Spanish refugees, and uh, that is really when France became again the popular front. And the, as a kind of a free country, which is what? Did any people that you knew that you were friends or yes, friends go to fight? Yes, for instance, Kappa, Robert Kappa, went over, and then Shim, the photographer, went over, and Kappa. Did you know them in Paris? Or well, in Kappa, Robert Kappa, I knew. You knew them then? And Shim, I didn't know, but his girlfriend, uh, a German young woman, very lovely and photographer, went with him and was killed over there. And then a couple of German refugees went over there and were put in prison. And then uh, I think, yes, uh, Kastler, the writer Arthur Kastler, mm -hmm. he went over there and his wife, he was, I knew him quite well, and his wife and I, we went and collected money in order to get him out of prison over there. 
and uh, he was condemned to death. Then that they let him go. And uh, all kinds of people, of course, you know, went over, came back, and whatever. When did you meet Kappa? Oh, I met Kappa before the Civil War in Montparnasse. And so somebody said, oh, you and Kappa, you should get along magnificent. In reality, there was no great contact between him and, and us, but he borrowed some lenses and so forth. It was very nice man, very, very nice. Cartier, I didn't know at all. I didn't know photographers at that time. We had uh, another question we had was, uh, uh, we talked a little bit about Yosef's paintings. Uh, who were the? Did he um, hang around with a, a group of painters? Was he aligned with anybody, or did he uh, work with? Or other Russians? No, never with Russians. He had no contact whatsoever with any Russians. He was in Montparnasse forever and knew all the painters and all the sculptors and all kinds of people. Were there any that were his particular friends? Did he really uh, like? Yes. Uh, did not at that particular time when I knew him have really friends. Hmm. He knew people and he was wonderful with them and he was very much liked and got along beautifully with them. But really personal friends yeah. would would he uh, I've seen somewhere a statement uh, that uh, about his work actually saying that it was one of the few things that, that two people agreed on that, that both uh, Andre Breton and Mondrian thought were good, then usually they, those two people would never have agreed. Somewhere I saw that written. Uh, That's very strange. Years. Well, Mondrian, yes, but I don't know about. You see, Yevsa was a man darling, you should have known that. For instance, I knew, I knew nothing about him. Hmm. And one day there came an architect whose name was Berkovici, and he was the, assist the assistant of Le Corbusier. And that was a friend of Yevsa's. He had, he had bought several paintings of Yevsa's hmm. at a time when I didn't know him at all. And he'd asked me if I knew this time when Yevsa made these terrific abstract paintings, which then he gave up, and I said no. And then he said to me, but of course this incredible thing he made with his little store. I had no idea what that was all about. I had to learn everything about Yevsa from everybody else. My sister and... We just didn't talk. <laughs> and apparently, I don't know when, Cartes had photographed, no, he didn't. He opened a little store in order to make a living, which wasn't bigger than from here to there. Like in between, the coup from, from this window to here, and small. 12. Well, it's, it's not to be believed yeah. what that was. And I do remember it, but then I wasn't interested in all that. And that was a bookshop in between the dome and the cupola that didn't exist at that time, and apparently had become extremely famous, hmm. and was called L'Esthétique. And yeah. it was a bookshop of very, very old and unavailable books, and at the same time a gallery in a space like this. That's what this architect told me. <laughs> and this architect passed by and was flabbergasted in which way the space was divided. Yeah. And went into that store and said, ah, who on earth has done that? 
and the offset that he had. And this architect photographed that, and it was published in Art and Architecture, the greatest architectural magazine in France, and then in all the newspapers and all over, and so forth, because of the absolutely unique kind of a way a man was able to make out of a small space something which. And Jefferson was the first one also to exhibit clay and Mondrian in Paris, in that little gallery. How do you... Uh, here, okay. Yeah, no, I, I just didn't understand when you say l'esthétique. Now I know it would end in I-Q-U-E. Hold on. L'esthétique. This was before you had met. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then it was so well known that people from America came and directly stopped at that store in order to get information where they should go and it was an incredible thing which I didn't know. Yes, I would never talk, talk, talk about it. Huh. Whatever he had achieved, you know, he would never speak about it. Well, did, did uh, you have contact with Mondrian when Mondrian came to New York? Oh, yes. Yes. I photographed Mondrian. In New York? In New York. My first flash photograph. And oh, right. I didn't understand his paintings at all at that time. And I always said to Yevsa, how, how can anybody understand that? And then I photographed Mondrian, and I said to myself, such a beautiful kind of man, so convincing. And I photographed him next to a painting of his. Yes, yes, I, yes, I knew him quite well, and Mondrian was such a wonderful kind of a... He didn't ever complain about anything. Mm -hmm. He never was... Nobody had ever bought a painting of his, except when he came to the United States, some of his students here. And he hung his paintings, no gallery would give him a show. So he hung his paintings on the trees, Boulevard Montparnasse, like on Washington Square, next to the lousiest painting that existed, next to kind of an old-fashioned amateur painting. That he didn't care. He hung it just here and there and there. Hmm. And he died in a stupid way because he was old, but he was very strong and very alive. He danced every evening. He was crazy about jazz. And then he had pneumonia. And always when the friends called up, he said he was very well. And when they came, it was too late. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you ever, do you ever disagree on uh, particularly uh, aesthetic matters? Do you ever argue about the paintings or, uh, or anything? Which one? With, with Yasser? Did you ever disagree about what was the... Uh, you see, in the beginning, I didn't understand a thing, because I only started to have a feeling for painting when I did it myself. And then very slowly, I discovered in a window in Paris, Utrillo. That was the first thing that struck me. And that then, and little by little by little, but I never asked questions. When I didn't get it, I didn't get it. And Mondrian, I couldn't, and suddenly it opened up. Always in an unexpected way. For instance, I always heard that El Greco was a wonderful painter. And I looked at that and I said to myself, I don't know what that is. And one day I went to buy stockings at Macy's. And there was Christmas time, a big table with all kinds of art books, you know. And I opened up that art book and that was okay. And I was flabbergasted. And this is a way. I 
sometimes understand things at a specific time when I don't expect it, and especially when I don't understand something, I leave it alone. Yeah, just let it I just take let its it, time. I let it go. If I never do, I never do. There were never discussions with Yevsa about paintings, except just a couple of words where there was an indication that we agreed and we understood this or that. But Yevsa was, students would say to Yevsa, um, how do you feel about this kind of a Picasso? And Yevsa would say, who is that? Well, didn't you see this exhibition also not this? Never heard of it. Paint. That was his way to teach. No intellectualism, no comparison, no explanation. He would start every session the same way. I cannot tell you how to paint, because that I do not know myself. But take color, don't think, and put three spots of color, red, green, and blue, and let's see. And then he had a course of 12 psychoanalysts. Now that was something. You mean students were yeah. all psychoanalysts? <laughs> one came and brought the whole psychoanalyst. They stayed one, almost two years. They adored him. They learned from him what they never learned in their lives in psychoanalysis. <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. No, he wasn't driving crazy. You know, that was, that was, for instance, he said, What's your name? Dr. Such. No, no, no. He said, That I can't remember. Paul okay, Jim. Uh, now, Paint is three colors, and then he put it on the wall. And then he said, this is artificial. And this guy said, artificial? Never painted in my life. Well, of course not. You have looked too much as a museum of modern art. Do it again. Same thing, artificial. Then the guy took the, closed his eyes, took the paint with the left hand and put it on. Yes, I put it on. Same thing. It took them a long time. They had nervous breakdowns. <laughs> they were scared to death. They told me so. Hmm. And they were heartbroken when Yevsa didn't teach him. They hmm. gave parties for him. They paid him twice the amount he asked. They really learned something. I'm sorry that you didn't know this man. Yeah. If you want to see a photograph of him, it's um, maybe a. But this is a. Of course, it is, of course. The photograph I took when I met him, and he didn't look that way anymore. He looked as beautiful as well, so I'm not going to It was published in the Japanese exhibition. harder to find than something that you, just one thing that you want to find.
There is a catalogue of Janet at this exhibition when he had all the painters photographed by Oh, you're, you're looking for the, uh, okay. the catalog. Because it's a photograph I took, you know. Uh -huh. It's a photograph which is snapshot. Was this was this from the exhibition that he had there at that time? Yes. mentioned that maybe we should just uh, when we get done just look look for some of those uh, I don't remember offhand what what there was a there were some other things that you were you were going to look for too what um, uh, was one of the letters yeah so why don't maybe we should just do all that uh, um, you know a little later if you can't really find it easily at this point I won't find that as an that in my hands but that is for my students do you want to speak your friend there? Oh, yes. Uh, I don't know where it is because it's here, so that it's going to take you even longer. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we do that okay, after we're done? talk for a while, and uh, we're going to finish up fairly shortly, and then we can look for all these things. In the week. So you know, all these books I got approximately from Abitur, because when I told Michael Hoffman that I do not like it, and I don't want to have a book printed. He said he sent me other books. <laughs> <laughs> she maybe I ought to try that. <laughs> right to him and say you don't want to put it together. Whatever book I want, but ever since I want that he has them so to tempt me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and trying to show you that they do good work, I suppose, too. You know, it doesn't happen very often to photographers they don't want it. Um, let's see. Uh, did you say that it was was Ralph Steiner who who yeah. sent you to the photo league? No, it was Ralph Steiner who was in PM mm -hmm. and who who published this photograph and who brought them to Brodovich and Brodovich brought them. You know, I talked to him several years about it and he didn't remember it. I said, you know, that you were the one 
who made my unfortunate career. This is Ralph Steiner. Yeah, yeah. he didn't. He didn't recollect that. Well, then who um, who did send you to the photo league? Beaumont Newell. What? Uh, how did that come about? Did he send you to see uh, a particular person? No. He sent me to Life magazine, to Bernice Everett, to Paul Strand, the Photo League, and maybe to other things I can't remember. He was just trying to get you yes. out into the... he wanted people to see. And the Photo League at that time was a documentary club, and everybody believed that it was completely apolitical and that it was not. And that is something I, I found very dishonest they did. What I couldn't... I didn't like the Photo League. There were many nice people there, but they didn't do anything but talk and talk and talk and talk and philosophize and philosophize, and I've never heard anything like it. I'm curious as to just what, uh, I mean, what it was like. You described it as a club, and they did a lot of talking. Didn't they have also a, a dark room? And, and Maybe they had. I don't know. Ex exhibitions? And exhibitions, of course. And didn't they do particular projects? Uh, Maybe. You see, I was sitting there, never opening my mouth. The only thing I once said was, if I would have talked as much about photography, I would never made a picture. And they were very nice to me. They made me. They made a show. They gave me the first show, 41. and uh, they certainly were very friendly. But the whole atmosphere of group analysis and of philosophizing about photography was just directly opposite. It's to not the your one. cup of tea. No. Who were some of the main people who were nice to you? you well, oh, very nice was Walter Rosenblum, Sid Grossman, who died. And now, was Walter Rosenblum when you first arrived? Was he very active in it then? Yes. And, and then did he? Yes. Then he went to the war. He went to the <coughs> war. And then didn't didn't he come back and was active again after the war? Well, I was. You know, I was very rarely at the photo league. Not often. Maybe he was. I don't know. I was coming back to the photo league when the photo league was declared. Uh, uh, Makasi. Yeah. What, would, what did they say it was? Un-American or something. Un-American. <laughs> then all the people rallied, rallied and gave pictures to exhibit, but I was not a member. Mm -hmm. They made me a member in order to exhibit the photographs, and I felt that it was completely unjustified. Well, and how, uh, how did that work, uh, the membership? I don't work? know that. Did you have to pay money to be a member? Yes, very little, and I didn't even have that. So, that. so you never joined? No, only when when McCarthy came, they said, would you mind being a member? You don't have to pay for that, so that you can also exhibit your pictures. I said, yes, of course. Now, we, here, I just wanted to ask about some other people. Um, you mentioned Rosenblum. What, what kind of a person was he like when you first met him? How you very, very him? young, very shy, very sensitive photographer, incredibly sensitive. And. really unsure of himself, and then he went into the war, then he came back, he had been honored there, and then I lost track of Rosenblum. I met him last year again, and then there was one day somebody who called up and said, do I want a job as a Brooklyn, um, what is it? Hunter College? No, Brooklyn, kind of a School? college. Brooklyn College. But a design job, and I said, no, I, I cannot do that. You know, somebody wanted something like a Bauhaus. And I said, why don't you ask Rosenblum? And he took the job and is there since then. Hmm. Well, that was in the <coughs> 50s sometime. Was that more recently? Oh, oh no, that was a long time. Oh, okay. yeah. 
but you didn't you didn't ever have much contact with him after he came back from the war. Yeah. Um, how about Sid Grossman? You mentioned him, and he's been. And Sid Grossman was a very controversial kind of a figure, and. Uh, what was the, the controversy? I, I have, uh, controversy was that he, his teaching was something which I felt was impossible. He fixed people on himself much more than Brodovich and directed them up and down and up and down. When they became successful, he destroyed them. And I, in the last years of his life, I definitely was against him mm. and felt that he was abusing, and he did. And then he had a heart disease and died very young. And I, yeah. he, he has a couple of people, mainly David Vestal, who regards him very warmly still yes. in memory. All right, let him let him regard him warmly. <laughs> I don't. You think he was not he was uh, destructive as a teacher? Definitely. I, I told him that many times. When did you was there? Uh, you didn't feel that at first when you when you first. No, and maybe first he wasn't. You see, people change. Would that was the change over the period that the, the McCarthy investigations and, and everything were going on? Was yeah. that maybe what no, changed? No, that him? was something else. I think you see, Sid Grossman was a man who first was a communist, and he said so, and then and then when he saw that he said it, he said he he really became a communist because he felt that the communists will win in America, and then he will be in power. So this is this is already a mentality which. And then he was deeply disappointed, and every failure he had with magazines and with that and with this, he said it is because he was elected. But it wasn't because of that. It was because his photography didn't fit in, and because his behavior was impossible, and his pretense was out of this world, and he was a ruler and a king, and also a very, very attractive kind of a man. And Berenice always said, for God's sake, a man is in the wrong profession. He should be an entertainer. <laughs> I hated his photography. So I don't care very much to talk about Sid Grossman because my feelings were very negative in the last years of his life. And didn't, didn't he run a class at his home or something? Yes, he did, and always invited us to come. And, and I found, and I said to him, "What are you doing here? This is impossible." Because you know, it's one of the in, in terms of the, the tape and our. What well, then of course, Ann Tucker is going to write about the photo league, and she's going to write about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that I was wondering about it, sir. But maybe other people see it in a different way, you see. This is my way of seeing it. Yeah, no, what I was trying to say was, uh, uh, I, I read this in an old uh, popular photography or something, uh, from not too old, maybe 10 years, and uh, it was like a, uh, I'm always, whenever anyone says there was a tape or there was a thing in my, you know, my ears, I always, <laughs> I always listen closely to or read what that is closely, and they said that there was, um, at one time, uh, a wire recorder or something made some recordings of some of his classes, and that the, it was uh, there were some people that typed up some of that, but then the recordings were lost, and no one knows where it is. And I wonder if you knew anything about that, or recalled there being a class that you were in where there was a recording. Or yes, there was a recording, and I, I even yelled at somebody. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he said, "Listen to you, how wonderful you were," and I was shocked. But you I don't know anything about it. I was very, I was not close to that. But you did. You you went to some of those. At his yes, home. in the beginning, but then I abandoned that. I didn't want it anymore. Was that you and Yasser that went? Hmm? Did Yasser go with you, did you say? Yasser went a couple of times with me and, and also was amazed about the unphotographic kind of way the whole thing was treated. I, I, I cannot, 
I'm absolutely negative about that. And I'm unbelievably negative about every teacher who takes advantage of the emotions of students in order to fix them on his personality and then fiddle around with emotions of the others. That is the last thing. And of course, Brodovich did that too. Very destructive. Um, some other people's names, uh, Strand, uh, you mentioned how he showed you so many photographs you had a headache yeah. when you left. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought I wouldn't survive. But um, uh, was he extremely active? Was he one of the great philosophizers when you were first went to the photo league? Or? No. I, I, as practically, I had never seen Paul Strand there, maybe once. You didn't have any contact with him through the photo league, particularly? No, I had contact with him only because I went to see him. And we got along very well. And Strand always said that my photographs I took in Europe were true, and I didn't understand America, and what I did here wasn't true. Yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous. He didn't want to see America the way I photographed it. Mm. And I was against his photographs, and everybody knew it, and him too, but we were very good friends. You, you didn't happen to see him when he was here uh, a couple of years I ago? I saw him at the birthday party, the 90th birthday party of Steichen. And we talked a little bit. And uh, but I think that is all. He was a long time in Europe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, uh, well, that's another man I don't know too much about, who I guess is still alive, uh, Saul Lipson. Oh, Saul Lipson, yes. He was there. And then he worked for Stryker. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, I, I meet him somewhere. He has students, and he works, and, but I don't know him personally very well. But he was one of the people you would see when, at the photo yeah. league. Yeah. First, uh, oh, yeah. And, and I don't know how much Eugene Smith was as, uh, to do with it at the time. Or I don't know if he ever had. I never saw him there. You never met him there? Yeah. Did you ever meet him, or only oh, very recently? Yes, of course. He wrote a, a letter. During the war, he wrote a 10-page letter to U.S. Kammer as one of my greatest fans. I've never heard of him. Of course, this letter must be somewhere. <coughs> and when I read this letter, I had the feeling that the guy who wrote it was, must have been insane. And You'd never he heard of him? Hmm? You'd never had met him or heard of him at that time? No. And then I met him after the war. He showed me his photographs. And he started to cry and to say that it was his fault that the war didn't stop because he didn't do enough. Yeah. And then I met him another time, and we had some very amusing run-ins. And What kind of things do you mean? Like you know, for instance, one of the run-ins was that I met him once in a concert of Delonius Monk. <coughs> and I went there because I, I love jazz, and I know that Delonius Monk is really a great musician, you know. But certain things in his compositions I couldn't get. <coughs> so I went to this concert, and he was Eugene Smith standing with a camera wanting to photograph, but I didn't have a camera. I was sitting. And then <coughs> and I didn't still understand. And then the intermission, Smith came over and he said, how do you like that music? And I said, I think it's wonderful. <coughs> but certain things he does, I don't get, you know. And he said,